If you'll reach for your Bibles with me today for this morning's scripture reading, and we are back in the book of James, James chapter 4, I'll be starting in verse 6, reading through verse 10. If you're in need of a pew Bible, you can find one located in front of you. For today's scripture reading, the pages will be, will be starting on page 1201 in the pew Bibles. James chapter 4, starting in verse 6, reading through verse 10, excuse me, follow along as I read. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Father, we come, Lord. Father, we come with a people that want to be humble before you, Lord. We want to be humble. We want to hear from you this morning. Be with Brother Chris, Lord, as he brings your word and your message. Open our hearts Cast away all fears and doubts, any distractions, Lord. May it just be about you and you alone. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Man, that was toe-tapping. Man, that was, man, Randy read the scriptures. I wanted to jump up and preach. We sang. I wanted to jump up and preach. And now reading the word of God. I am so thankful for those who lead us in worship. Amen. We Yes, yes, yeah, uh, Maybe a few more. That would be good. Believe me, believe me, we don't want to take that for granted. It's an honor to lead God's people into worship, and it's an honor to be led. Well, Dane just read these verses, five verses, and they pack a powerful punch. I mean, you know, James has been waiting for us, and he's coming right back at us just like he we left off from him. Look in your Bible again at verses 7 through 10. These four verses are comprised of 10 commands. Find them there in your Bible. In the New American Standard, they're submit, resist, draw near, cleanse, purify, be miserable, mourn, weep, be turned, humble yourselves before the Lord. Now, you might be thinking, wow, okay, I'm glad I came. (laughs) Well, what in the world? But listen, before you tune in, tune off, or tune out, listen to what God is wanting to accomplish in these ten powerful commands. In James' typical manner, he delivers ten body blows to the double-minded hearts of his hearers with just rapid-fire succession. There is no connectives. It's just boom, 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 boom. The commands are there. His hearers were scattered uh, Jewish Christians who were struggling to live with a real faith in a real world filled with real problems. And maybe you're struggling this morning as well. Maybe you feel scattered. Maybe you feel cut off and all alone. Maybe you struggled to come last week to the world outreach due to a busy life or juggling priorities or just feeling defeated by your sin. Maybe you're here this morning, you're sure of your salvation, but if you're honest, you are more in love with the world than with the Lord. You're more into pleasing your flesh than your heavenly Father. Well, these ten commands are good news for you this morning. These Ten Commands are good news for hard hearts, for hurting hearts. They are good news for hurried hearts as well. What do these Ten Commands give us as a solution? They can be summarized in one word. Repent. 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 Whether it's Jonah, as we've seen in the previous weeks, whether it's Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom is near because I am here, 
or whether it's Paul the apostle preaching the missions to Gentiles and Jew, the message is the same. Keep on repenting and believing the good news about Jesus Christ. Listen, we're coming off of a great world outreach celebration and making our 2023 faith promise commitments. But you know what? Coming off a great week like this, it's easy to get stirred, but not changed. It's easy to be moved by our missionaries. God has blessed us with phenomenal partners and yet not transformed. See, it's easy to make an external commitment to faith promise, but not make an internal commitment to loving the Lord. I so appreciate Randy putting all these flags up. And, and, and yeah, it's always kind of a letdown when you come in and you're like, oh, but you know what? I love the flags. They point us to the, to the nations, but I love them coming down because it reminds me it's not external motivation. It's not external. It is internal with the Lord. In other words, it's easy to come out of last week like Jonah came out of the mouth of that great fish, half repenting and not fully committed to the Lord, not having the Lord's heart where we reap over what He weeps over, where we rejoice over what He rejoices. You see, too often God's people forget that repentance is a lifestyle. We tend to think of repentance, and let's be honest, if we think of it at all, as something a sinner does to get saved. In other words, repent, oh yeah, I trusted Christ back when I was a kid or a few years ago as an adult. Sure, I repented. I changed my mind about Christ and I I went from being an unbeliever to a believer. Repentance, been there and done that. But James is speaking to believers in this passage. He is speaking to us, not unbelievers, brothers and sisters in Christ. And even though he never uses the word repentance in these Uh, these Ten Commands, he is clearly reminding us of this truth. Repentance is a lifestyle for God's people. It's not just a one-time act. It's not a one-off. You do in the past to get saved, and now you're okay. But it is an ongoing lifestyle of the already saved. For many years, I ministered in the country of Romania, and some of you went there with me, in the heart of Transylvania, alongside Romanian Baptist believers. But the thing was, they weren't called believers. Romanian believers were called repenters. Repenters. You're a repenter because repentance is a lifestyle, and all believers are called to be repenters. And so I want you to realize today, we are called to be repenters. Repenting is what true believers do, not just to resolve conflict, but to reflect Christ. The reason I say that is the context of these commands. Look at verses 6 through 10 in your Bible. They are planted here in chapter 4, and the context is the problem of conflict between Christians. But what James tells them as the solution in verses 7 through 10 are not just for when we're in conflict, it's for every circumstance of our lives as believers. You see, repenting is what true believers do, not just to resolve conflict, but to reflect Christ. Repenting is not just for unbelieving sinners, it's for believing saints. Repenting is not just for the big sins we occasionally commit, but for the little sins we too often excuse and ignore in our daily lives. But before we dive into this passage, I want to be clear on how verse 6 connects to these commands. Look again in your Bibles to verse 6. James says, But he, the Lord God, gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore. We submit to God, and we obey these commands we're going to look at this morning because God gives greater grace. God's grace 
goes before us. And because it goes before us, repentance can be a reality for you this morning. Once again, James is reminding us that faith without works is dead. Faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. And grace that produces no works is not saving grace. He's saying, look, God is giving you the grace. Now fulfill these commands. I also want you to see that verses 7 and 10 bookend these commands. In verse 7, we see submit yourselves to God. In verse 10, we see humble yourselves before the Lord. And in between are these five characteristics. These ten commands are five characteristics of a lifestyle of a repenter. Greater grace is given to the humble, and the humble will respond by faith with a lifestyle of repentance. And these ten commands are interesting. They're all in the same tense, and uh, I never learned English grammar, but I know a little bit about Greek grammar. And these commands are all in the aorist tense. What's that mean, Chris? It means simply this. They're all-encompassing commands. And they're, they're, they're urgent. They're decisive. If this was a Nike commercial, James would be saying, just do it. Just do it. And keep doing it. So keeping the promise of greater grace in mind, let's look at these five characteristics of the lifestyle of a repenter. And the first characteristic is simply this, kneeling down. Kneeling down. Down. Look at verse 7, the first part. Submit, therefore, to God. Repentance begins with submitting, kneeling down. Submitting to God means placing ourselves under the lordship of Christ and therefore just committing ourselves to do whatever he says, whenever he says it, and wherever he tells us. It's a military term that calls for a soldier to place himself or herself under his commanding officer, ready to do whatever is commanded. It's used in the Bible of submitting ourselves to God, but also to those authorities God has placed in our lives. This same word is used in submitting to governments, uh, to qualified church leaders, to husbands in marriage, to those we work under in the workplace, as well as submitting to one another. And all of this is done in Christ. Biblical submission, in essence, is being quick to hear, quick to obey from the heart. But as one pastor put it, unfortunately, James's opening command grates like fingernails across the chalkboard of contemporary culture. And maybe you're listening today, and it rubs you wrong as well. And just realize, that's our flesh. That's all of us. You know, you say, oh, I, I, I like submitting. Yeah, when it's something you want to do, <laughs> okay? Uh, just ask me to do something I don't want to do, and suddenly I have a problem with submission. So I want to give you two reasons this morning to look at this in the light that God puts it, it is a positive light. Let me give you two reasons. This isn't the S word. This isn't a cuss word. This isn't a thing that is unworthy of us preaching or practicing. It is something good. First of all, submitting to God is a blessing, not a curse. Submitting to God is a blessing, not a curse. Why? Because ruling over creation under God is what we were created to do. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the very image of God in us, the very aspect of our humanity is for us to come under God and in under Him comes His blessing for us to fulfill His mission and mandate in our lives. You and I were created to be under God we were never created to act like we're large and in charge and we're going to live our best life now doing what we think is best. That leads to woe. 
It doesn't lead to blessing. And listen, when you place yourself under God, that's where his blessings begin to flow. That's where his blessings. Do I mean you're going to have prosperity and health and, and get rich? No, but whatever you go through, you're going to have the blessing of his presence working in and through your life. It's a blessing, not a curse. And who was the one that first started this idea that submission is a curse? Go to Genesis 3. It was the serpent, the liar, the murderer. It was he who said to Eve and Adam tagging along, don't listen to God. Take, eat, become like God. You determine what's right and wrong. You choose to be large and in charge of your own life. God, he's a killjoy. And submitting to him, well, that's a curse upon your life. It's worse than a curse. Take and eat. But in reality, the exact opposite was true. Submitting to God is a blessing. The curse comes when we rebel against him and try to live on our own, doing our things according to our priorities, according to our desires, according to what we think is best. And the same is true for us as Christians. You will never, ever be able to live the fulfilling, fruitful Christian life that Christ, we just sang about, that Christ died for, he rose for, he gives greater grace for. You'll never experience that until you place yourself under him fully and completely. And here's the second reason you should do that. Submitting to God is a refuge, not a prison. Don't you love that? Submitting to God, you know, the idea is, well, if I submit to God, I won't get to do this. It'll be a straitjacket on my life. No, it's a refuge for you. I just want to read from five different Psalms. I could have gotten a lot more, but listen to these Psalms. Psalm 212, do homage to the son, the king, in Psalm 2, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 18, 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That doesn't sound like a bad place to be. It sounds like a good place to be. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Psalm 62, 7, O God, on God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Here's the point. The first characteristic of a lifestyle of a repenter is kneeling before God, daily submitting ourselves before Him. You say, Chris, how do I do that? How do I do it? Well, the last words of the prayer of the Puritan Richard Baxter provide a perfect prayer, and here's what he prayed in his last words. Lord, what you will, where you will, when you will. Some of us need to pray that prayer right now. Right now, today, will you pray that prayer? What you will, when you will, where you will. I did that three months after I got saved here. Shirley was telling me that 50 years ago on this very Sunday, first Sunday in November, the Patricks walked into this church. And the very next Sunday in November, Leonard gave his life to Jesus Christ. I walked into this church. I settled my salvation, and three months after that, knelt right there. Shirley remembers Leonard right over here. I knelt right there, and I said, Lord, I didn't, I, I didn't know Richard Baxter, but I prayed anything, anytime, anywhere. No clue what I was praying. No clue where I was going. I didn't even know where I was going to go to college next, but God did, and I just placed myself under him. 
J.I. Packer explains a lifestyle of repenting this way, surrendering all you know of yourself to all you know of God. That's repenting. Surrendering all you know of yourself to all you know of God. And when I knelt right here so many years ago, so many I can't even calculate, my knowledge of God was, was like this, okay? It was like this. And therefore, my knowledge of myself was even less. But what I knew of him and what I knew of me, I surrendered. And as my knowledge of him grew, the knowledge of my own sinfulness grew, and I had more to repent of. And as my knowledge of him increased and has increased, and I'm still learning about his greatness and his goodness and his graciousness. And the more I know, the more I see the rotten depravity of my heart, the more I have to submit. But you've got to start with that initial giving. So the first characteristic is a lifestyle of a repenter is kneeling down. And here's what I pray every morning. I pray the Lord's Prayer every morning before I even get out of bed. Here's how you pray. Our Father who is in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, not my kingdom. Your will be done, not my will, on earth and in my heart as it is in heaven. Well, the second characteristic is this. He follows this with the command of standing strong. If you're going to have a lifestyle of repentance, you need to be standing strong. Look at the rest of verse 7. Resist the devil and he will what? He will flee from you. Now resist, like submit, is another military term. And resist means to take a stand, hold the line, and do not surrender to the enemy. Do not let the enemy take even one inch of ground in your heart. It's like in football. You're there at the line, you're the offensive lineman, and you're going to take a stand, and you're not going to give up one inch and let them get to your beloved Mahomes. You're going to stand guard. You're going to keep watch. And when the devil attacks, or when he tempts, or when he tries to ensnare you, stand your ground and don't give in to his deceitful schemes. You see, the command to resist the devil is connected to the first command to submit to God. We submit to God so that we can be under his authority and under his care in his refuge, and there we take our stand against the devil and his deceitful schemes. Listen, James is immersing us into spiritual warfare. Folks, there's a war raging and there's only two sides. You're either on the devil's team or you're on God's team. And there is no no man's land. My wife and I just watched All Quiet on the Western Front. Great book, okay movie, but powerful nonetheless. Listen, there's no no man's land. Either you are in Adam under the curse or you are in Christ and you are blessed in him. There's two choices. Submission will keep your heart soft to God and your will strong to the devil. What kind of deal is that? As you submit to God, you will keep a tender heart to God and you will have a steel strong will against the devil. It's kind of like that little boy who the bullies come and pick on and the little boy tries to stand up to him, but he's outnumbered. And all of a sudden, the bullies get wide-eyed and they'll run away. Why? Because his big, powerful dad is standing behind him. That's how we face the devil. We face the devil having submitted to God and have his protection around us. So let me give you three ways to do this, to resist the devil, because I think this is where we struggle. First of all, stand strong in Christ, who is your armor. Stand strong in Christ, who is your armor. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 17, give us what James is talking about. Notice in Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Not yours, his. Put on the full armor of God. It comes from God, not you so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and forces in dark places. Jim Smith told us and reminded us, the enemy is not people, the enemy 
is the devil and his demons. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able, and there's our word, same word as James, resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of hope. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Listen, these weapons are Jesus Christ. Jesus is our truth. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is the, the one we put our faith in. Our faith is in Jesus, and He is our salvation. Any believer who stands in Him will not only resist the devil, but you will put the devil to flight. Here's what I want you to remember. Take Christ to the fight, and the devil will take flight. Take Christ to the fight, and the devil will take flight. So stand firm in Christ. He's your armor. Stand strong in the sword with the sword of His Spirit. Stand strong with the sword of the Spirit. There at the end, the last piece of armor is the only offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is the only offensive weapon. And you know what? It's the only weapon the Lord Jesus Himself used when He was battling Satan in the wilderness. It's very popular today to separate the living word from the written word and to exalt the living word as though the written word is not the word of God. Nay, 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 nay. The living word, when confronted by the devil, used the written word to defeat him. Be in the word. And then stand strong in prayer with his saints. Stand strong in prayer don't ever read Ephesians 6 about the armor of God without reading verses 18 through 20. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. With this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. That's how we resist the devil. And we don't just do that once. We do it again and again and again as a lifestyle. We identify with Christ in the morning. We get into the Word. We sharpen the sword. We're prepared for battle. We put on that armor of Christ, and then we pray, and we pray, and we pray some more. And when we're tempted, we do those. We use those crazy smartphones to text for something of significance and say, pray for me. Pray for me. How can I pray for you? Let's pray for one another. Let's use technology for the kingdom of God. And so the characteristics of a repenter, the lifestyle, is kneeling down and standing strong. And how do I pray this way? The Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. A daily prayer. Here's the third lifestyle characteristic of a repenter. It's drawing near. Drawing near. We see this in verse 8. Look in your Bibles. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Notice the contrast between the devil and the Lord. Resist the devil, and the devil what? Flees from you. Draw near to God, and what does God do? Draw near to you. What kind of deal is that? Drawing near to God. There are two views that you, if you are a believer this morning, there are two views you need to cultivate your, in your life. And it's the devil's back and God's face. You have God in your, mirror, in, your, in your front windshield, whatever that's called, your windshield, and you keep the devil in your rear view mirror. You want to see the back of the devil as you draw near to the face of God. You draw near to the face of God in the person of Christ. You draw near to him in the scriptures, and you will see the devil fleeing from you. Now, here's what I want you to remember. James is addressing Christians here 
who are saved, but they're double-minded. They're riding the fence, and they're never really committing to live for the Lord. John would call them lukewarm Christians who are having an adulterous affair with the world, the flesh, and the devil. So drawing near is not the drawing near of an unbeliever. It's the drawing near of a believer. It's the drawing near like the prodigal son who foolishly lived in the pigsty of sin and has finally come to his senses and returned to God in humble repentance. So I ask you a question this morning. Does God seem distant to you this morning? Then you got to ask, who moved? Who moved? You or God? God is unchanging. The father in the prodigal, in the parable of the prodigal son, the father was always at home. It was the prodigal that left. And when that prodigal humbled himself, submitting to God, and decided to stand strong against the devil, he ran home. And, the heaven, and, and his father, who represents the heavenly father, was busy at home, but he always had one eye on the horizon. And so the second he saw that foolish boy coming home, what did he do? He dropped everything and he ran. He ran and he embraced him and he hugged him and he celebrated him and he forgave him. Pastor Kent Hughes says this, inch toward God and he'll step toward you. Step toward God and he will sprint toward you. Sprint toward God and he will fly to you. He will fly to you. But be careful. Be careful. Though the lifestyle of drawing near, the lifestyle of drawing near is not just for the prodigal. It's also for the elder brother who stayed home. You see, the elder brother, brother did everything externally that the father desired, but he never drew near to the father and therefore he didn't have the Father's heart. You see, the lifestyle of a repenter is for the obvious prodigal, but also for the self-righteous son that stays at home, goes to church every Sunday, gives what they're supposed to give, does what they're supposed to do, but their heart isn't broken. It isn't broken over their sin and the greatness of God's grace. And that's why the fourth, the fourth characteristic of the lifestyle of a repenter is washing up. Because, beloved, we all need our sins cleansed. Yes, in Christ we have brought near. We are brought near through Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that, but there's a near nearness. And yes, we are cleansed of our sins positionally, but there is a daily cleansing, okay? When you come to dinner, your mom says to you, have you washed your hands? They don't, your mom doesn't ask, did you take a bath before dinner? No, you took a bath once. Well, once that day. Then you continually are cleansing your hands. Man, if there's anything that the pandemic taught us was how to always be conscious of cleansing, Cleansing, before I do something, cleansing. Look at verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Whoa. I mean, read that again. Just look at that again. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, if you're like, yeah, we're, we're kind of tempted to say, I, I think that's for you or you, you know, because that's pretty strong language. He's not talking to me, is he? And the reality is, yes, he is. He's talking to all of us. Clean hands and pure hearts speak to sinful actions and selfish attitudes that birth them. He's covering everything. He's covering, covering the external sins that can be seen. You got dirty hands, wash them. 
but he's also talking about the dirty heart, the attitude, the thoughts. There comes a place in our Christian life where we think we no longer need repentance because we, we only measure sin in the externals or the big sins. We, think not, we don't think about the white-collar sins, what I, you know, the, like the, well, you know, griping, complaining, greed, the things that are inside. We can look good on the outside, but we can be like the Pharisees where we have dead men's bones on the inside. All of this needs confessing and forsaking. So let me just make a couple observations about this particular verse. And the first thing I want to make is this. This command is addressed to Christians, just like the rest of the letter. So again, I want to remind us, positionally we are forgiven, but practically and progressively we still need to confess our sins. I think confession, personal confession, on a daily and even moment-by-moment basis is probably the one of the least practiced spiritual disciplines. We just go through our day, and we go through our day, and we go through our day, and all the while our hands are getting dirty. All the while our thoughts have filthy thoughts that come in, or we see things. It's almost entirely unavoidable in this day of technology not to see what we shouldn't see. And it comes, and we need cleansing. We need cleansing. And we know he's talking about Christians because he calls them double-minded. Unbelievers aren't double-minded. It's the Christian that says, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I want to do it. I I know I'm supposed to confess this, but I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that later. So that's the first thing I want you to see. And yet Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray this on a daily basis. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We are to pray and ask and daily seek forgiveness for our sins. Second thing I want you to see about this is cleansing hands and purifying hearts is Old Testament language. We heard it in the call of worship today that Randy read the pure hearts and the clean hands. Old Testament priests had to wash their hands before they offered sacrifices up to God. They had to wash their hands before they entered into the Holy of Holies to intercede for God's people. And then, of course, the Pharisees in Jesus' time and James' time took this to an extreme and made it a legalistic rule that you always had to be physically washing hands. But Jesus broke their man-made rules, and his disciples broke them. Why? Because the hands are pointing to the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and the hands act. So when he's talking about dirty hands, he's wanting us to get to the heart of the issue because the problem, the heart of the problem is always the heart. But the third observation I want to make is hands are still important. Why? Because your hands, your eyes, your mouth, your tongue, your feet, your entire body is either a weapon for unrighteousness or a weapon for righteousness. You see... Hands, feet, eyes, and tongues, they all matter. Hands are used to wrongly please yourself. Hands turn on what should be turned off. Hands withhold what should be given. Hands can physically hit what ought to be hugged. Feet are used to run toward what we should be running from. Feet run away from gathering with God's people instead of running to gather. Eyes are used to lust after what is not yours to look at. Eyes are filled with screen time instead of scripture time. Tongues are used to curse and to cuss what should be blessed and praised. Tongues are used to cut others down and not build them up. Beloved, the lifestyle of repenters is to wash up on a daily basis. And we do it again, the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us of our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Wash up moment by moment. 
The lifestyle of repenters is to confess sin and forsake it. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Listen, listen. When we get up, and, and I, I, I have been convicted of this, when we get up and we go to bed and we get up and we go to bed and we don't have a time of confession, you know what we're saying to God is? I don't have any sin. I don't have any sin. It doesn't bother me. It's not an issue. Listen. Don't remain in that unholy habit any longer. Don't just regret your sin this morning. Run from it. The heart of the problem is always the problem. Stop being double-minded about your sin. I know it's wrong, but. I know I ought to, but. I wish I could stop, but I can't. Listen, if you're a Christian, that's a lie from Satan. You can say no to sin. Is it a fight? Yeah. Is it spiritual war? Yeah. Is it a struggle? Yes. Are there times where you're going to get defeated? Yes. But you don't remain in it. You don't remain in it. You practice the lifestyle of a repenter. Some of us just need to stop caressing our sin and start killing it. Kill it. Kill it? Jesus said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, I'm not advocating that, and neither was Jesus. But his point was, it's serious. And that is the fifth characteristic of a repenter. Getting serious about our sin. Look at verse 9. This is the one that grabs us, especially as American Christians. This is foreign to us. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. James is getting to the heart of repentance. How do you feel about your sin in relation to God and what it does to other people and what it does to yourself? Are we broken by our sin? Do we weep over the horror of our sin and not just its consequences? I always hate sin when it costs me something. I just don't hate it so much when I think I'm getting away with it. We saw this mourning, this wailing, this lamenting in the city of Nineveh. They, were, they got so serious about their sin in the book of Jonah that they had their animals wailing and mourning over their sin. Here's the reality. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin's curse is deadly. It will separate you from God and from others. Sin's consequences are costly. You will always pay, and you will pay in ways you didn't expect and can't control. Sin's chains are humanly unbreakable. The snare of the devil is a snare that only Jesus Christ can free you from. We should weep over our sins. Don't be like the Corinthians. You know how bad we can get as Christians? We can get so bad, we can be like the Corinthians who had Christians, professing Christians, practicing incest, and it was accepted and welcomed into the body. And the scattered Jewish Christians that James is talking to are laughing about what they should be weeping over. You say, Chris, I would never... I don't do that. Oh, yes, we do. We do. We may not overtly laugh about sin, but we often overtly laugh about it in our entertainment. We often accept the most... We accept things in our entertainment that we know is wrong. We know is wrong. And we're soaking in it. And our, our people are drowning in it. Pornography is rampant. But we can break free. We don't have to live like the world. You can break 
that adulterous affair off today. You say, well, I've never committed adultery. Yes, with your eyes. Yes, in your heart. We need to let our laughter turn to mourning. We Listen, anytime we sin and then we are content in it and not dealing with it, we are laughing instead of weeping. We need to be miserable over sin. Grieve. It, the word literally means be wretched. Be devastated by our sin. More than just thinking, oh, I messed up, we need to be thinking, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. Why was I, why was I so abrupt with my wife? Why was I so harsh? That's my heart. I need to be broken over that. I need to weep. That sinful attitude, that action is what's inside of me. And except for the grace of God and a transformed heart by the Spirit of God, this is who I am. We need to be like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. Same word. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? We mourn over sin. That's what he's doing. He's verbalizing his mourning. He's saying, who's going to free me? I am broken. I am enslaved. I am in bondage. Set me free, won't you please? And then we weep. We wail like we're at a funeral because sin kills. Sin separates. Sin dulls your senses. Some of you struggle and didn't come last week because you're so involved in your sin. And that's what silences the mouth of God's people. And we're going to lose a whole generation to missions because they're enslaved. They're enslaved in quiet desperation. Because no one's telling them you can be free in Christ. These three words describe the posture of the heart. Misery, mourning, and moaning over sin. And the posture of our body and the words that we say in prayer. Listen to Luke 18, 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away. I don't, I, I'm not even worthy to approach was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the lifestyle of repentance. God help me. God help you this morning to get serious about sin. Two warnings. The first is this. Weep for the right things. What do I mean by that? Weep over the right things. I mean this. It's easy to weep for consequences, but we need to weep over the core of our sin, the heart of it. It's easy to weep when it costs me something and forget to weep of what it costs God and his people. We can weep when it's our name that is tarnished by our sin, but do we weep because God's name is drugged through the dirt? Then number two, this is important. Weep, but don't wallow in your guilt. Weep, but don't wallow in your guilt. True repentance weeps over sin, but rejoices over God's grace. Amen? It's not all doom and gloom. You know, too many Christians are like, uh, too many unbelievers have a right to say, he must be a Christian. He doesn't look happy. No, we should be happy. We're happy that God reveals sin and we can it, we can be forgiven, and we can walk in newness of life. So don't be all doom and gloom. You should say, I am happy because God enables me to weep over my sin and lament the sinful condition. One author put it this way, the thrust of true repentance is essentially positive. Repentance leads to transformation. Remorse gives way to joy. Not only does a love affair with the world cease, but the love of God is restored. And so here we are, the sixth and final characteristic. Staying low. Staying low. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
The church father, Augustine, said, As a tree must strike deep roots downwards, that it may grow upwards, so everyone who not, who not in his soul fixed deep in humility exalts to his own ruin. Listen, the great hindrance to repentance is a proud heart. Proud hearts don't repent. Proud hearts don't submit. Proud hearts don't resist the devil. Proud hearts don't draw near. Proud hearts don't forsake and confess sin. Proud hearts don't lament over sin. Proud hearts don't reconcile with others. Proud hearts don't humble themselves before the Lord. The heart of repentance is humility. But God gives greater grace to the humble. Listen to this hymn by Annie Johnson Flint. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more grace when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known to men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. The hope of repentance is Jesus Christ this morning. You realize that everything of these commands Jesus has done on our behalf. He submitted to the Father and came and became truly God and truly man and submitted to the point of a cross death. He came and he resisted the devil in the wilderness and conquered the devil on the cross. When he shed his blood, blood on the cross, the veil was rent from top to bottom so that we could draw near. Jesus never needed to wash up and confess sin, but he shed his blood so that we could. He wept over sin when he went to the cross, and he wept over sinners as he became the perfect sacrifice for their sin. And Jesus humbled himself unto death. Therefore God exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and say, Jesus is Lord. With your heads bowed, and may God bow our hearts this morning, Jesus is ready to be your repentance this morning. He's ready to be your peace. He's ready to make that jailbreak from sin that we talked about. He's ready to set you free. Listen, if someone came to you, if someone came to you, and they were, they were married, and they came to you, and they were your best friend, and they said, you know what, I'm in an affair. Who would immediately tell them, break it off, break it off, break it off. God is saying to us this morning, break it off. Break off that adulterous affair. If you're not a believer, repent and receive Jesus. He will save you this morning. And if you are a believer, remember, you're a repenter. And Jesus can enable you to live this lifestyle. Father, we come. Break us anew and afresh. Remind us, Lord, of what our lifestyle is to be about. Make our sin repugnant to us. Make it just distasteful. And Lord, let us run to you. Run to you as repenters this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus.